On this episode of Progressive Palaver, the group discusses Wish You Were Here. Hi and welcome to Progressive Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands album by album. I'm Joe Beauclair, and on this episode of Progressive Palaver, I'm joined by my very good friends Tom Corcoran, Ken Gregory, and Paul Zotter as we continue in the Pink Floyd catalog, today covering Wish You Were Here. All right, gentlemen, Wish You Were Here. As mentioned before, the very first CD I ever purchased, very specifically, what was I, 15 maybe? I knew you guys. I was living on Peggy Lane at that point, right down the street from from Jay and Tom. I didn't have a CD player. My oldest brother had one. And, you know, I was deep in the, the joys of discovering progressive rock. I was fixated on the middle part of this album. I knew Welcome to the Machine. I knew Have a Cigar. You guys were, were performing. Wish you were here. Honestly, it, Welcome to the Machine just... It, it it made my my adolescent skin bubbly and excited, and it was wonderful, and I loved it. Being an, an over-dramatic teenager, I had determined that my first CD purchase had to be something that was substantial and monumental, and I had, I had very specifically targeted this album. I needed to have this album be the first CD I ever purchased, and it was. I still have it to this day. That's what I have been listening to in preparation for this episode. There's a whole lot more here than than what I originally hey, Joe, recognized. Can, can you show me that again? Can you show me that one more time? I sure can. I just realized this like an hour before we started that there were two versions of this. There was one guy in flames leaning toward the other guy, which is what you have. And then there's another a version where he's standing up straight and he's almost tilted back. And one was a UK release and the other one was American release. Over the years, I was reading about this, over the years, there came out with so many reissues that they sort of jumbled them up because I guess the powers that be like didn't know that there was a difference. So there's actually two different versions of this. And I wanted to see which one you had. Interesting. So. Poe Powell talks about taking this picture. And I want to say he said he got like five or six exposures. Now, what I find interesting, Tom, and, and now I'm really, really curious, back when we were in college and I had become sort of fixated on these huge subway posters and I had them mm. all over the place. I have one for Wish You Were Here and I still have it to this day. They're rolled up in tubes in my, in my closet. I have no idea what I'm ever going to do with these things. Like, I, I've got some really good ones. I've got this one. I have Peter Gabriel Plays Live, I think. Um, you know, just fantastic stuff. So now I'm really keen, Tom, to see which version is on that huge subway poster. Because I don't know. And I never would have paid attention if you hadn't said anything. It's It's a slight... Uh, difference and because I I'm just you know a graphic design geek and I'm always looking at stuff I I literally just noticed it like an hour ago and I like completely freaked out I was like wait a minute I'm looking at two different things here and then like I'm scrolling through everything on the internet like looking at different versions I found this on um, Freudian slip website they have 
there are two photographs from the shoot were used for the album cover. One shot using 35mm color transparency film was used for the album's UK release. Another using 120mm transparency appeared on the US release. They can be distinguished by one's leaning forward and down by the Flaming Man, and the other is leaning back and up by the Flaming Man. Wow. Who is consumed by much of it was consumed by much more flame than the alternative shot. And that makes sense because there was some, some problems at the end there with the, the guy uh, really, I don't think, think he was actually physically injured. The wind, I guess, changed. And this is on the documentary that I think we probably all saw. The wind, the, the wind changed and he started breathing the smoke and he actually stopped it. But they actually got the picture. But, man, my mentality, just being a graphic designer, I'm like, oh, okay, they did this. They had the two guys set up, and then they put the flames in and Photoshop or whatever. Or, you know, maybe it wasn't, you know, I'm thinking like, okay, there was no Photoshop back then, but I'm thinking like it was put in after the fact, right? Things were so badass back then. Like, they actually had real people doing stuff. Um, not to say that a graphic, de- a graphic designer isn't a real person, but, I mean, there's just there's such great things that happen when um, – you actually have to put people out there. And I mean, literally, these guys were risking their lives for the shot. A lot of the interviews on The Lost Art of Conversation involving uh, Aubrey Powell, um, co-founder of Hypnosis with Storm, he talks about, you know, how they were, I don't know if adamant is the right word, but they were they were very committed to actually filming something real. And, and for that very reason, Tom, you know, Poe speaks rather uh, passionately that, you know, the results you get when you film or photograph something actually real produces a noticeably different effect. And even when you look at the interior picture on this, he, he talks about he talks about that shot in this documentary as well. And, and what a pain in the ass it was for that poor guy doing the yoga pose underwater in order for him to be able to get that. It's very, very cool. The subway poster in question is so large, and you can see so much of the detail, you can literally see whatever ungent is is applied to the wig to catch fire and stuff. Like, you can see that level of detail. It's which on one level is kind of disappointing because it, it sort of breaks the illusion. But on the other hand, you're like, holy crap, that's for real. Oh, if you guys would humor me. Do you remember when Dark Side of the Moon was? 1973 in March, in March. And there's a whole lot of heavy stuff that goes down. Prague is alive and well. But I'm going to call this the arena rock version of uh, Prague. King Crimson, Lark's Tongue, and Aspic, uh, Procol Harem, Hawkwind, Yes Has Yes Songs, Gong, uh, Mike Oldfield, Madfred Man's Earth Band, Jethro Tull, Passion Play, Queen Self-Title, Genesis, Genesis Live, uh, Frank Zappa and the Mothers, Gentle Giant, Renaissance, Ashes Are Burning, Genesis, Selling England by the Effing Pound. And then we get over to, oh, it's only November. ELO has on the third day, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, Brain Salad Surgery is a good one. 
Uh, do you guys know what double album from Yes was December 1973? That was, uh, you're talking about Tales. Tales, yes, yes, yes. So there's a lot of prog going on in this period. Oh my goodness. Uh, 1974, Tangerine Dream, Camel, Queen with Queen 2, Kansas Self-Titled, King Crimson, Starless, Bible, Black, uh, Rush, Rush. There's a lot going on here. And, and, and I think the reason why so much time is passing is because Floyd is touring their effing asses off with that whole dark side thingy. Broke All Harem, Rick Wakeman, Journey to the Center of the Earth. Hawkwind, Supertramp, Crime of the Century, Todd Rundgren's Utopia, Utopia. Oh, God, that's fucking awesome. Awesome. Sweet. King Crimson Red, Manfred Man's Earth Band, The Good Earth. What Genesis concept album happened in November of 1974? Ooh, that would be The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. Yes, yes. Brian Eno, Kraftwerk. What, in December of 1974, what... Did Yes release possibly Joe Cass's favorite Yes album? And you have to say it with the accent. That would be Relayer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we love our Joe Cass here at the Flavor. <laughs> and then, and then the stupidest album title, but a wonderful album: Rush, Fly by Night, uh, February nineteen seventy-five. And still no new Floyd. People are saying, where's my goddamn Floyd? Kansas Song for America, Tangerine Dream, Soft Machine, More Camel, Hawkwind, Rick Wakeman, The Myths and Legends of King Arthur and the Knights of the Roundtable, Frank Zappa and the Mother's Invention, Renaissance, Gentle Giant, blah, 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 blah. Pink Floyd, Wish You Were Here, September 1975. That was a huge stretch. Wow, Caress of Steel was released on the same day as Wish You Were Here. That's interesting. What a stark comparison those two albums could be sound-wise. Yeah. Goodness. So, as Ken mentioned, uh, Wish You Were Here was released in September of 1975. It was uh, produced by Pink Floyd and released on the labels Harvest and Columbia. The band lineup consists of one David Gilmore, Roger Waters, and Nick Mason, and Richard Wright on all sorts of equipment. Um, but one of the things that shows up everywhere is the EMS VCS3, which will play a big role in um, Welcome to the Machine. But uh, notable uh, additional musicians on this record, one Dick Perry, he on tenor and baritone saxophone of he of the uh, the Cambridge Mafia. Roy Harper, who does lead vocals on Have a Cigar, which we'll get to that when we get to that. And Vanetta Fields and Carlina Williams, who did backing vocals. Now they were they were the ladies who were were touring with Pink Floyd um, for the backing vocals and presumably performing Great Gig in the Sky. They have a lovely little section in the documentary that I watched where they talk about, you know, they were happy to be able to, um, to record in this album. And, and, you know, the, the one lady has, has just a fantastic story about when she sort of was offered the gig and she's like, I don't really care for the music these guys are doing. Why am I doing this? And, mm -hmm. but she thought there was some, 
there was some higher reason why she was supposed to do this and and it you know it turned out to be good so i thought that was very very cool um track listing shine on you crazy diamond parts one through five welcome to the machine have a cigar wish you were here and shine on you crazy diamond parts six through nine Wish You Were Here is the ninth studio album by the English rock band Pink Floyd, released on 12 September 1975 through Harvest Records and Columbia Records, their first release for the latter. Based on material Pink Floyd composed while performing in Europe, Wish You Were Here was recorded over numerous sessions throughout 1975 at Abbey Road Studios in London. The album's themes include criticism of the music business, alienation, and a tribute to founding member Sid Barrett, who left seven years earlier with deteriorating mental health. Like their previous record, The Dark Side of the Moon, Pink Floyd used studio effects and synthesizers. Guest singers included Roy Harper, who provided the lead vocals on Have a Cigar, and Vanetta Fields, who added backing vocals on Shine On You Crazy Diamond. To promote the album, the band released a double A single, Have a Cigar, and Welcome to the Machine. Wish You Were Here received mixed reviews from critics on its release who found its music to be uninspiring and inferior to their previous work. It has retrospectively received critical acclaim, hailed as one of the greatest albums of all time, and was cited by keyboardist Richard Wright and guitarist David Gilmour as their favorite Pink Floyd album. The album reached number one in the U.S. and U.K., and Harvest's parent company, EMI, was unable to keep up with the demand. Since then, the record has, has sold an estimated 13 million copies. Now, Wish You Were Here also shows up in the revised and updated edition of 1001 Albums You Must Hear Before You Die. Ah. This, this is the third of four entries that Pink Floyd has in this August volume. <laughs> so, as we do when when the album in question shows up in this August tome, gentlemen, here is the reading. <laughs> Faced with the enormous task of following up Dark Side of the Moon, Pink Floyd momentarily embraced their old experimental spirit and began to make household objects, an opus to be recorded entirely with... Um, household objects touring <laughs> <laughs> touring refocused the group and also began to harden Roger Waters hatred of the music business as Pink Floyd became a number crunching stadium sized commodity recording for wish you were here began at Abbey Road studio or Abbey Road in early 1975 opening with the multi-tracked were of wine glass rims circled with moistened fingers the only surviving element of household objects shine on you crazy diamond is possibly the floyd's single greatest moment complete with david gilmore's album defining four note guitar figure its nine parts bookend the record a majestic 25 minute eulogy to departed leader sid barrett barrett's unexpected arrival in the studio in june chimed with the thread of quiet desperation that haunted the album. No one recognized the fat, bald man who slipped into the control room. Have a Cigar, sung by group friend Roy Harper, is one of the best hand-biting songs ever written, and the title track is as bittersweet as the group would ever be. 
Hypnosis artwork reflected the album's isolation and distance. It came shrink-wrapped in black cellophane with only a sticker indicating the name. Released in September 1975 to indifferent reviews, the album shot to number one on both sides of the Atlantic and turned the group into an even bigger, number-crunching, stadium-sized commodity. Here ends the reading. I love it. So... I'm thinking of, if I'm going to select 1,001 records, I'm thinking definitely four Pink Floyd albums need to be in there. I'm thinking you add in at least one more. I mean, you got 1,001. There's got to be at least one more Floyd record in there. It's obviously Dark Side, Wish You Were Here, and The Wall. What was the other one? Animals. As Animals? Is my guess. Okay. It's not. It's not Animals. It's uh, metal. Really? It's, okay. Animals would have been my guess, but nope. It's not. I, I want to. I, I I seem to remember what it is, but I want to just check it just to well, be hundred percent. My would be um, Adam Hart Mother. It's probably right. it's probably Piper. Just I, I think it is. I think it is Piper. Uh, of course, because we need to pay homage to the psychedelic Sid Barrett era of Pink Floyd. Well, Sid Barrett was the leader of Pink Floyd, Paul. I don't know if you ever heard that or not. <laughs> <laughs> Everything that they have belongs to Sid Barrett. It was the uh, the, the Piper at the Gates of Dawn. Okay, so, fair enough. And fair I, enough. I don't know that we had. Uh, I don't know that we read the the thing in its entirety when we did that episode. Um, but you know, whatever. So I mean, that's like giving somebody a participation award. You know. <laughs> so one of the things that that came out there that I did want to speak to because it's actually mentioned explicitly in the wikis. And, you know, I, I have this irrational fascination at this point with hypnosis and, and the way they approach things in, in this particular fact, because I, I honestly didn't know that the album came shrink wrapped in, in black. And the way the wikis explain Storm's thinking for that is, you know, Storm's interpretation and, and, and this comes out in, in some of the interviews that, that Poe has done as well. I, I love how sort of hypnosis was given sort of enough leash to interpret the music themselves and create images that go with that. While the the album is undeniably about Sid Barrett, Storm apparently, according to the wikis, determined that the overriding theme of the album and the songs was in fact absence. It wasn't that mm. that you know Sid got ill and 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 everything else. It was it was absence sort of across the board. And so according again according to the wikis and and hopefully we'll find out here at some point in the future. Storm's thinking behind the black cellophane was that the album itself was essentially absent, which is I'll, I'll give I'll give props to that. I think that's kind of a cool interpretation. Yeah, I dig you know, that. I'll give props to whoever it was who talked the record label into that idea. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine saying, okay, there's like, your, your curb appeal. You're, you're in a record store. You, it's, it's what you see a lot of times is, is what gets you to, to pick it up. And to actually be able to talk a record executive into Telling them, oh, this is about absinthe, man. Absinthe and, you know, it's about emptiness, man. This is going to be great. 
and people are going to, you know, have this empty cover and they're going to pull it out. Then they're going to see the real cover. I, I mean, the fact that that was that conversation took place and they actually talked an executive into that is mind blowing. I mean, because obviously some somewhere down the line, re- the, you know, the record label came to because when we were buying Wish You Were Here, we weren't buying it as a, a blank cover. We bought it. Yeah. You know, actually on cassette, we were looking at the, the hands, the mechanical hands. And, you know, yeah. on, on DVD and record, we were looking at the, um, the Wish You Were Here cover with the, with the, the guy in flames. But the thing is, that's such a risk. It was, it was a different time. And, 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 you know, perhaps nostalgically, we'd like to remember it as a better time. But you, you could also, make the argument that it was still just a couple of years earlier where they walked in with a picture of a cow as their album cover. So, right. you know, and, and this could have been a big improvement. And, and keep in mind, <laughs> keep, well, and, and so keep in mind, this is on the heels of the dark side of the moon. I, I think, <clears throat> I think these guys could have come in with the, with the poop emoji at that point And, and the record company would have said, yeah, sure. Great. Put it out there. And people would have bought it. I mean, not that the poop emoji existed in 1975, but it is. It is kind of like the the pompous thing to do, right? Like, you know, the Beatles did the white album. You know, I just put a white white cover. Screw it. Yeah. And um and many years later, you know, after Metallica, you know, did their like, uh, you know, and Justice for All, where they had this incredibly successful album that didn't get a single drop of radio play um, or promotion from anyone. And then they released their follow up and it was just all black, kind of a pompous thing. I don't know if you guys ever noticed, <clears throat> but in previous episodes, I have a beef with people born in the 50s. And uh, that, 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 that constitutes a huge swath of baby boomers. Where I love their art and I love what they contributed to so- to society, but I just think that they were completely random and unhinged. We had a lot of structure as Gen X, and life was just effing weird in the '70s for these baby boomers. And we're marveling over, you know, you can burn a guy in a photo shoot. And I mean, September 8th, 1974, Evil Knievel jumped Snake River Canyon jump. When we were kids, everything was weird and violent and big and large and things were just different, you know, and and people could like screw up and lose money and make money and crash their motorcycles and get hurt and they would find funding the next time around. You know, Evil Knievel yeah. crashed like three or four times and broke his pelvis before ABC's Wild World of Sports came along to pump him up again. So, Wild World of Sports. So, it, it was just a really fucked up time, guys. Nothing that we experienced as adults. So, the other thing that I found interesting about this in in the uh, in the documentary even as they're telling this story, you start to see a divergence in the perspectives of of Roger and David. And, and I don't want to, you know, put too much into that and, and you know, because it, it is what it is. But, but 
they both have the same general message, which was after Darkseid and you achieve everything that you said you wanted to achieve at Musicians, you have to ask yourself, what are you doing now? What's the purpose here? And they each state that in their own individual way that, that sort of starts to highlight, I think, their difference in, in overall worldview. But, but it, it is still the, the fundamental question that they had. By all accounts, getting started on this album and, and writing these songs apparently was not easy. We, we've talked about that before on, on other segments that we've done, right? After you have one of these breakthrough watershed moments, it's not always easy to continue on that vein and, and recapture magic at the same level. But I think, I think in this particular case, while critically it maybe wasn't uh, given its due initially, I think it has held up extraordinarily well over time. And to the point where a few weeks ago I was, you know, I was arguing offline that in some form or fashion, some on some scale, Wish You Were Here is a better album than Dark Side of the Moon. I, I don't know that I'm still willing to make that argument, but there was a time when I certainly was. Yeah, Joe, I, I don't disagree with anything that you're saying. There probably was a time that that I thought Wish You Were Here was at, at least as good, maybe even better than Dark Side. But and I and I totally get why critics and fans would have thought that you know Wish You Were Here was sort of almost like a a sophomore album compared to Dark Side because you know Dark Side it was life changing to people who heard it. It left an indelible mark on popular culture for decades, and, and to, to this day, it's just as relevant now as it ever was. There's something to me so refreshing about Wish You Were Here in the beginning, and the it, it refreshing, and after they, they made this life-changing album, they just decided to start with a bunch of synths and a, and a blues jam you know, for a few minutes, you know, before they even started singing. And <laughs> yeah, I, I just, it's, it's fantastic. This album is known for two things. It's sort of known as their last collaboration together. And then it's known by them. And this is what boggles my mind. It's, it's understood by them that it was sort of the beginning of the end. Uh, you know, various interviews, they'll, they, they talk about how, uh, in, in different spots while while they were recording they they knew that that the end was near to the band because things were not go, going well and this what what amazes me is they didn't break up until 85 and this was in 75 so you have 10 years and in the 10 years there's animals there's the wall and you have final cut for a band to have such major forces butting heads in, in a creative way, 10 years is an eternity. I find myself going, wow, you know, we will very rarely hear any of these four guys talk about th this 10 years. Now, I watched like four documentaries on uh, David Gilmore, and I, I listened to them all. And whenever the guy who was interviewing started talking about anything after uh, Wish You Were Here. David Gilmore says, oh, we don't need to talk about that. Uh, you know, there's more interesting stuff. And, <laughs> and there's just very little that anybody wants to say. But it's got to, it had to have been 
a horrible situation. The more you're invested in it, the the more heartache you're going to get when things are going awry. And, you know, this is their life. Obviously, I don't want to project my thoughts on it because I wasn't there, but it seems like Roger Waters kind of took over and this is what he wanted, he wanted afterwards. I'm sure that was difficult for the rest of the guys in the band. I'm just shocked, A, that they lasted 10 years. And I'm shocked, B, that at least Animals and The Wall were tremendous albums. The <laughs> fact that they still had that success and they were all miserable really puts me in a place where I just um, I'm impressed by them, but I'm all, I also feel sorry for the fact yeah. that they actually went through this, you know, 10 years of hell. And because most people, you know, wouldn't do it. Most people, one, one person starts drifting and they split. Okay. And there might be an album. Okay. Um, look at, you know, Peter Gabriel's situation in, in Genesis. There was oh, the, the one album and there was a problem and then he left. I mean, shit. so look at, imagine look at, 10 years of that. Look at, look at Yes. How many lineups would Yes have in a 10 year span? Exactly. They, they'd have four exactly. or five lineups. So right. I, but I think it's a very interesting juxtaposition between the two, though, because, you know, these guys were, you know, schoolmates friends they had all been associated with one another you know in in one way shape or form as they as they came together and while 10 years is a long time you know if you think about recording an album touring recording an album touring recording an album touring with the the kind of success that they had and the kind of things that they were doing that can really eat up time pretty quickly i you know without even realizing it i mean shit while you were talking, Tom, I was just thinking of where I was 10 years ago, and I'm like, wow, it's kind of flown right by. And the fact that they were all sort of like friends from the beginning, and they, they sort of came from this collective group, I think may have been, you know, more of that, that you know, quote unquote, and they say, oh, being in a band is like being married to like five people, be right. because they they were close before then. Yes, was kind of a bunch of guys that you know met in bars and kind of got to know each other and said, hey, let's make some music and try to do some stuff. And so perhaps personally, there was less invested. So when they got tired of the music or they got pissed off at someone's ego, they just picked up and left. And everyone else was just like, no sweat, we'll just bring someone else in. And you know, with Genesis, as people left, they never really got replaced. Right. <laughs> <laughs> But Floyd stayed together. Yeah, long. they stuck it out. So, my God, if you were to just think about a minor song or a minor scale, the, 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 you know, from the one chord to the four chord, and a minor would be something like this. But when you go from a minor to a happy four chord. Now you're talking blues, baby. You're talking Dorian mode. And it's a beautiful thing, right? And Shine On You Crazy Diamond. It's a G minor song, but it's really heavy on the Dorian. It's really heavy on the blues in influence. And this four note phrase, Paul, you were playing it earlier. It's just amazing because it's probably one of the most compact ways of expressing the Dorian mode.
And if it's not Dorian, it's Lydian, which is a major kind of a thing. And what's so freaky is that E, the last note, the open E on the guitar just ringing. That is the color note in the mode that makes the mode what it is. Gilmore just sits on it. And I would say that this lick is just as iconic as Sabbath Bloody Sabbath, which is musically something different. It's, it's like a tritone that they're capitalizing on. But it's just so perfect and so iconic that, that, that anyone can play it on an instrument and you know exactly what it is, even if they completely butcher it. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's it's funny. I love the way when the, the band talks about that, apparently David played this phrase and Roger Eagers went up and said, what was that? That sort of opened up the floodgates for the rest of this. Now, what I find fascinating about that, and, and Paul, you sort of touched on it, we don't hear that four-note phrase until four fucking minutes into the song. Mm -hmm. Four minutes. We have already noodled our way, if that's the word we want to use, through mm -hmm. an entire song length, and suddenly David comes in with that. And we all do the same thing Roger Waters did. We go, whoa, what the hell was that? <laughs> you know, and, and, and you're totally just getting the warm and fuzzies, right? And then David brings in sort of the, the blues lead under it, and it just gets fucking better, man. You're just like, oh, mm -hmm. Jesus. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's just, oh, it's, it's phenomenal. So, again, you know, when I was a teenager and I bought this album, I bought it for Welcome to the Sheen. I bought it for Have a Cigar and Wish You Were Here. I, I can't say I really knew shit about Shine On You Crazy Diamond. And I, I'm not even going to say that I fully appreciated it at the time, but when you hear that phrase and you're like, whoa, what's that? And, mm -hmm. and it's just one of those things where while maybe the middle part of the album has, has ebbed a little bit over time, Shine On You Crazy Diamond, both the, the front and back bookends of this record have just elevated in my opinion. Mm. Mm. It's amazing. I really feel the Richard Wright influence. I really feel the whole jazz influence of Dark Side. The, I mean, in the beginning, it's primarily just a blues. But when they turn it into a vocal song, number one. Oh my lord, just those three chords are absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. It's it's worthy of being next to Dark Side. This may be the only track on this particular album that's worthy of Dark Side, in my opinion. <laughs> oh, do you hear that? It's just melting. Oh, it's just like oh, and then this F is gorgeous. That is just it's just so fantastic. And they go through that progression again. And, 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 and the descent is just, you were caught in the crossfire, childhood and stardom, blown on the steel breeze. 
Oh, do you hear that? The jazz chord, that C9 right there? It just, just, just melts, man. And then, come on, <laughs> you target, and then they bring it back up. Far away laughter. And come on, you legend, you martyr. And shine, Jesus. God, is that beautiful. I would say it's probably a vocal pinnacle for Waters because he kind of more of the character showman and not the romantic singer. But there is some huge romanticism in this. Mm. Yeah, there there is. And I think, you know, again, based on, you know, the, the subject matter and, and, and everything else, um, it's it's fascinating to, to to hear him deliver this because, again, you know, at this point, Roger and David become the vocal yin and yang versus each other. And, and Roger's voice is usually used to convey some sort of sinister intent a lot of the time. And, and here you don't get that. And, and the other beautiful thing, that phrase that you were just talking about, Ken, resolves right into the, the sax coming in and just sort of carrying mm. you away, which is just, it's also beautiful. I love how epic David Gilmore is in in this song. It, it, you can almost tell he's been touring nonstop for like three years. And the whole beginning piece where there's a lot of wanking, then the the four chord piece starts, and then they get into the blues jam. I, I and it just struck me just the other night as I was listening to this. It's like like there's I don't even know how long it is five and a half minutes of instrument instrument stuff going on instrument metal playing. David Gilmore wanking on the guitar and you're never sure I can never remember when the vocals are going to come in. And then finally, you know, it starts with that. Like, remember when you were young and like, <sighs> that's it. Just one line. And Gilmore has to jump in with the right. Like he can't even wait. He's got to <laughs> fill the space with, with another lick. It's it's and it's, but it's so perfect. I, I did have one complaint. He's not, doing the iconic Gilmore licks in this song. Like the beginning of it does feel like meandering, you know? Like Yeah. He does. Yeah. So he uh in the second version of the guitar solo at the beginning where where it comes in real sharp, like he does the woo 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 lick a couple of times. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, yeah, and that's yeah, like yeah. the first time it's really starting to like he's like establishing that little trick. I dig that. <laughs> when i was just jotting down notes for all these songs i had a common denominator of the fact that uh how impressed i was with what richard wright is playing he would actually come in with something really tasteful and i found i found it ironic that you know his role is more diminished after this album due to um roger waters but you would think that would be because Maybe there was some problem with Wish You Were Here, but I, I think Wish You Were Here, uh, Richard Wright does some of his most beautiful things. And it's in the very beginning, Shine On, he almost trades licks with David Gilmore, and you don't really realize. Mm. Yeah. Um, all of a sudden, there'll be this really nice guitar lick, and extremely smooth, the keys will kind of come in and, and do a melody. And you don't really notice it right away. Then they then kind of switch back, and there's a there's a lot of that. I mean, there's really these four guys are, are really one. I mean, it's sort of cheesy to say, but the, I mean they're really um, 
the really one band at this point and it's um really nice to hear and um i mean richard wright has a lot of really great moments on 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 this album there's always something that comes out of these palaver segments that maybe you weren't anticipating and my love and appreciation for richard wright one of those things i agree with you 100 percent, tom i always just naturally assumed that the decline for lack of a better word from which you were here through the final cut was a result of the 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 gilmore waters uh, friction but I, I think a lot of it has to do with you know the the diminishing impact as you pointed out of richard wright mm. yeah mm. yeah Too yeah bad. ken i i wonder if i might quote you from the the group text from I was on a roll this weekend. For, <laughs> just to sort of set the stage for, for maybe some conversation here. Um, BTW, I can't wait to trash Welcome to the Machine. It almost ruins the album. There is no groove. Where is Nick Mason? It's a project demo. Is Roger still recording in a garden shed? It's a crappy demo for Have a Cigar. Who needs this many E minor chords all at once? There are two nice lines that they abuse to death. The song reeks of beer vomit and cigarette burns. It's the epitome of arena rock gone wrong. <laughs> now, <laughs> now I'm going to give the benefit of the doubt here, Ken, and I'm going to assume that, you know, maybe there were some mitigating circumstances at the time that had the nerves a little raw. I know that, 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 our friend Tom here took particular exception to this, and and I didn't help anything when I chimed in and said, "Yeah, I kind of get where Tom, where Ken's coming from there." <laughs> and, and <laughs> it's not the Floyd we've known and loved. It's, there's something different happening here. It, it is something different, and 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 that's you know, by all accounts, you know, here's another example of, you know. Roger has a toy, this, what with the VCS3 or whatever the hell it's called. And, uh, you know, I, I guess he, he was noodling around a lot. And, and so this is another sort of manifestation of the Pink Floyd members doing sound design with whatever toy that they have. Um, and, and in the, in the, uh, in the documentary, Roger makes almost a, a throwaway comment about all the the wind noises on that came from the the vcs3 or whatever the case may be it, it's almost like he just dismisses it um it it has this heavy dystopian vibe right as it's yes. supposed to it to me it feels like you know blade runner come to life you know in, in a lot of in a lot of ways and, and you know i it's it's very dark it's it's beautiful in a in a dark and very sharp way um i'm guessing that this has some of the uh the moog portion in here because ken in, in past episodes you have referred to the, the to the moog and the mini moog as being very cold instruments and i feel that here right mm, mm, mm. Uh, yes, in the, in, in, the, in the solos. And I wonder if Richard Wright actually liked doing this stuff. I mean, I mean, it was, it was freaky. It was really cool for the time, and it certainly paid the bills for him. But this is not your warm and fuzzy Richard Wright. The one sort of thing that sort of grounds this, if that's the right word, is 
is the acoustic. On some levels, maybe you don't even notice it. But, you know, it's, it's the one sort of thing that doesn't feel completely artificial and metallic here. Right, right. Mm-hmm. You need that. Yeah. I'm waiting to see who's going to champion the vocals. Tom, Paul? No, I believe my contribution to the group chat was, why the hell are they whining so much on this song? Um, <laughs> I'm with you, Joe. In high school, I freaking loved this song. I thought it was freaking awesome. I loved playing the E minor chords on my 12 string. You know, I, I thought it was... Do you, do you remember? I do. Did the, the, and, you, the... and, you, and you weren't there. <laughs> um, I, we were um, playing a show and I was like, all right, this chord is for Joe Beauclair. And I strummed this E minor chord and they're like, he's not here. And that was in Tom's basement. <laughs> I remember that. That was awesome. I'm, I'm so glad we have the tape of that. <laughs> um... <laughs> and so I was in it hook, line, and sinker. And um, you know, I, I think if you're if you're of the school of thought that Roger Waters it was on a creative arc that was going to reach its zenith at the wall, this is the first seed of that arc. It it becomes more developed in animals and then it, it reaches its peak at the wall, and this is this is the first piece of it. But man, I gotta tell you, thirty years later, um, you know, listening to this album and this song comes on, and I'm just like, skip. One thing that I think is really cool, though, and I don't think I ever really appreciated this until literally just this week, and maybe maybe it's because my new stereo, I can actually hear things that you know that I'm supposed to hear. But the last chord of shine on you crazy diamond part five or whatever it is literally is the beginning of welcome to the machine like you feel that low bass presence of that you know ec whatever it is oh you know immediately on that last chord shudder through the low end of of the mix and it slowly rises into into the next track that's pretty cool how about that ascending E minor? I yeah, mean, exactly. <laughs> uh, Sounds like a Queen Strike song, doesn't it? So, <laughs> well, yeah. that's the the first note I have. That it's um, uh, I wanted to start on something less abrasive, um, and combative. So I wanted to just. <laughs> Um, Come on, Tom. <laughs> mention that this is definitely the song that uh, Operation Mind Crime, and it's a little bit more than paying homage. I mean, they they really use not only this same progression; it's almost the, the instrumentation. I mean, the, the sounds are are, are really similar. Um, so, as much as I love Mind Crime, I, I think that they, you know, Queen Strike may have um, overstepped its uh, creative bounds. <laughs> Which, which which I'm sorry, which track on Minecraft exactly? Is it like the intro or it's, it's, uh, the, it's the introduction to Eyes of a Stranger? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's it, uh, and it really is verbatim. I mean, really, it, I mean, uh, yeah, okay. okay. And they even have the ah, ah, yeah screaming right before the before the chords come in. It's right. a great it's a great homage to Pink Floyd. Okay, <laughs> all right, well. Oh, my empty room into. So, 
stranger. <laughs> All right. So, Empty so guys, room today. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, Tom. <laughs> I mean, if, if Paul, you're saying, you know, a particular song doesn't still affect me the way it, it did a certain amount of years ago, I, I, I can't argue with that. I guess I have to take issue with some of uh, Ken with Ken's text. Um, I don't know. We're, we all get in moods where we sort of like go off. I know I do. Um, where you guys will sit, say something and I'll have like a knee jerk reaction and go off. And then I'll be like, Oh shit. <laughs> These guys are right. They should. <laughs> but this isn't one of those times. I mean, like I can't, I, I can't fucking believe that, you know, some of these things that came out of Ken's, uh, not his mouth, but his text. I wanted to tackle some of these, Ken. What I did was, you go on several levels of an attack. Um, you're talking <laughs> about the production. You're talking about instrumentation. Talking about like cheap jabs. You're, I mean, it's like it's all. I mean, it's just like a, fu- a fucking like like a massive attack. Well, I wanted to take some of these one by one and just see: were you in just like a certain mood, or do you really? think these because i i have to i have to know about some of these so let's go through this text so first off um <laughs> I, you say i can't wait to trash welcome to the machine my god just that broke my heart like it's hard to even like read this text um it almost ruins the album there's no groove where is nick mason all right so let's stop right there so if i listen to the song in my head and even listening to it, you know, a couple times earlier today, I was listening to this and I was like, God, if this had drums in it, it would suck. Like it would, it would just wouldn't have the emotional impact that it does. The thing, one of the, the brilliant things about the song is there is a pulse or a throbbing, if you will, uh, of the, um, the keyboard. And that pulse is augmented and added to by Roger Waters bass. It really gives it this unique beat. It, it does it in a way that, you know, maybe uh, some sort of film scores do. I mean, if you just plain don't like the song, then it doesn't matter if there's drums or there's no drums or if it's Dick Mason or fucking Neil Peart or whatever. It doesn't matter. I mean, it's just if it doesn't work for you, it doesn't work for you. But I mean, I guess my first question: Do you really want to hear drums in the song? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you can still put some drums in and and, and save its character. Just, just, just personal. I mean, b- b- because I I was deeply connected to Dark Side. I had an epiphany with Dark Side. Love talking about it. We did two episodes, and this is not Dark Side. It's just so cold, and it just shows a side of what they were becoming well it's, a, it's about it, a machine it's a cold machine machines are cold i mean you're like you're selling it <laughs> i mean it, it, and, and, and and i get i get the point right but you know maybe the other side of this argument is you know if you're listening to pink floyd you're not expecting to hear the buggles okay the buggles the what in in the sense, I was going to say the Pet Shop Boys. You're not expecting to hear 
you know, electronic techno? timekeeping, techno, exactly. That's not oh, what you're expecting. Oh, oh, no. Yeah, so, but I mean, you've got the waka, 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 waka on dark side starting off time, but I'm just going to say that I think it's production. It doesn't have that warm and fuzzy tube mic sound that I get from dark side. I don't know. It just sounds like something's broken in the board in this whole welcome to the machine stuff. You know, what's interesting, though, Ken, is like I think this is the song that bridges us into animals. Like animals, I think it is a, a colder and more hollow soundscape, if you will. I don't know if that's the right way, way I'm thinking yeah. of it. But it's yeah. just colder and more hollow. And I think welcome to the machine is kind of the the path that gets us there. But but I mean, it's it's almost like the end of the path that gets us there. You know, you see the end of the path before you even go down the path. Yeah, because it, it is so far. And it's, and I and I think sure. what what I find jarring for me, and I, I'm sorry, Paul, relative to when I when I was young and and discovered this album, Shine on You Crazy Diamond, the has elevated to me to the point where. In, when I first got the record, I wanted to get through that so I could get to Welcome to the Machine. Now I'm so just wallowing in the joy of the, the band performance in Shine on You Crazy Diamond that when it, it drops me here, it freaks me out a little bit. Not that I don't yeah. still love it, but it's, it's such a, it's such a contrast. And, and I don't disagree with you that I think that's exactly what Roger was going for. That's what Roger wanted to do. And, and so, you know, maybe he's too effective in doing this um, just as a as a as a middle aged you know, guy who's listening to this from the point of view of trying to do a podcast and, and thinking about, you know, everything else. It, it, it is jarring. I, I still love it, but I appreciate why it is jarring. I present to you hardcore evidence that Welcome to the Machine didn't have to be quite so distorted and quite so crazy. Now, I love Gilmore's double-tracked vocals. I love the vocals. And I was hoping one of you guys would take the ball and run with it. It really is a powerful performance. But this vibe was done later in the catalog. I present to you Dogs of War. Dogs of War has all the mechanicals. It has all the coldness. It has all the aggression, but they managed to turn it into a groovy tune with a little bit of a sax solo in the middle. And it just feels right. It just 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 mm. makes me feel it, makes me groove, makes me think about the subject matter with just a little more love mixed in. Interesting. That's fascinating, Ken, because I agree with everything you just said about Dogs of War, except the fact that you're comparing it to Welcome to the Machine. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Tom, are we moving well, through the list? or <laughs> no, oh, no, no, no. So, Ken, I don't think what you described about Dogs of War, if you would have given those aspects to um, – Welcome to the Machine, if it would have fit on this album. I mean, I think that there's something to be said for I mean, just the title, Welcome to the Machine. You're you're looking for something cold. You're taking a, a journey uh, from something organic to something inorganic. Uh, and if you, you certainly add all those nice little bells and whistles you're talking about, you're, it might be good for a different album, but smacked in where it is, 
and wish you were here, I, I might argue that it, it might not be appropriate, but I do understand what you're saying. The next thing you mentioned, you mentioned <laughs> it's a project demo. Okay, so let's go to the project demo. <laughs> it, sound, it sounds like an entirely different studio because Shine On Your Crazy Diamond has all this space. It sounds like they're on a stage or a blues club or wherever the hell they are. And then, I mean, and then you're stuck in Roger's garage. Right. If you don't like it, again, I mean, I mean I'm never going to try to talk you into it, but I, I I'm, have issue with these specifics. And so and I'm thinking like, wow, you know, all these years – was I just emotionally caught up in this? Maybe it is a crappy recording. And I'm like, so what I did was I go into my studio. I told, I told Bonnie, I'm like, Bonnie, don't, don't interrupt me for a while. I'm, I'm listening to something. I have important I'm, business to attend to. <laughs> yeah. don't interrupt me. I'm going to tear it down. Do we have to edit this out? or? <laughs> so I go in here. Um, I shut the door. I, I, I crank. I crank it on my JBLs, on my mains, right? And I'm like, I started from the beginning of the album. I'm like, because I'm like, I'm like, oh my god, all this, all these years, am I have I been? Did I just did it just miss me that this is like a crappy demo? And I'm like, and I'm like completely like fucked. So I hit play, and I start listening to the album, and like really intently listening. Shine on comes through. We, we, and then we get into to, to welcome the machine, and I did not hear any difference in the production. I mean, when I say, I mean, it's a different song, and it, it makes you go to a different place. But I wasn't hearing any sort of demo. <laughs> I was like, "Wow, this fucking sounds great." Now I'm thinking to myself, "Yeah, you could you could add." different voices and i mean all the things you could add like a string section and you could add this that, and the other but i think that they meant to do what they meant to do i think that these guys were like what the song you hear now is what they meant to do um they i don't think they're listening to this going wow welcome to the machine sounds like a fucking crappy demo what the hell were you thinking i'm missing the project demo part just because you can use every instrument because you have the money and the means doesn't mean you should. And I think that they, the crisp sounding acoustic sounds so crisp because it's not other things aren't around it being played. When Rick Wright comes in with the, the keyboard at the end, that just hits you in the stomach. Uh, it's a very distinct sound. It comes to fruition because of the production that, that came before it. So my second question to you is, do you really, do you really think this sounds like a project demo? Okay. I will rescind the project demo. <laughs> if we can, if we can speed up this segment just one minute, I will rescind the project demo. I mean, if you, you put this up next to the other album that was released the day this was released, which was Caress of Steel, I, I don't, I don't think you can call this a demo. <laughs> <laughs> I will yield. And again, I want you to know that I. Well done, I, Tom. Well done. I'm just as guilty. I'm just as guilty of saying stuff as anyone. But I, I don't know. Some of the stuff just, just struck me. Okay, so we're gonna flip the uh, the vinyl over now, and we'll we'll start out with have a cigar <laughs> now. 
show of hands, who in the palaver knew that this was not one of the Pink Floyd members singing this before a month ago? No, I knew that only in the last couple of years, but I didn't know it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I knew it in like the last couple of days. Really? And, and, and it's <laughs> it's funny because I always suspected, but I didn't know. Like I was always like, which one is singing? This doesn't sound like either one of them. Who, who is you know? Yeah, I I always <laughs> thought it was Roger, and they just had some funky effects on there to make him sound like a record, you know, pompous record exec. Yeah. Because when I when I found out, I, I mean, I just felt foolish because I had spent so long thinking it was it was Roger, but it was almost like Darth Vader doesn't say Luke, I'm your father. He just says I'm your father. You're like, wow, you're right. That's true. Yeah. It, it sort of hit me like that. Like it was like, okay, yeah. <laughs> and and it's 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 really quite funny when you you know here again when you when you watch the documentary and the the different perspectives on. Why Roy Harper delivered this lead vocal and what the various people involved feel about Roy Harper's delivering this vocal is, is quite funny. And, you know, in retrospect, Roger doesn't seem very happy about it. And it's the beauty of the way these documentaries are cut because you get Roy Harper saying, yeah, I don't, I don't really think that, that, uh, Roger was really very happy with it. And then you cut to Roger saying, well, I really could have done it. And, you know, you're just like, oh, Jesus, here we go. Uh, you know, well, Joe actually said flat out, um, he regrets having Roy Harper sing on yeah. it. Yeah. And that doc, yeah. When they isolate David and, and Roger singing this on, on the, on the, on the master, it's not good. It, it, I mean, granted, it's not all affected up and everything else, but it's not good. And so, you know, I, this is one of those things where even though maybe growing up and we didn't pay attention and read all the liner notes and we didn't have the internet and all this other stuff and we were busy listening to, you know, Queensryche and Def Leppard back when, when we were however old, this is one of those performances where I wouldn't want it any other way. I mean, what Roy brings here, it seems to me, and maybe it's retconning the whole thing, it seems to be the perfect delivery of this lyric. That's how I see it. I, I 100% agree with you. All I know is that Roger was pissed off or he regretted it, and that the story that I read was that he was having trouble getting the vocals right. Was there anything more to be said about why they brought him in? Was it just that Roger couldn't handle it? And I believe the producer was, you know, was was basically saying, you know, we weren't quite getting what we needed. And I, I don't know if Roy happened to be there or Roy was, you know, next door. He was. He was. Rec he was recording next door. Yeah, and because Gilmore had cut some tracks for him while he was there. Yeah, too. and and, yeah. and Roy said, "I'll give it a shot." I didn't know anything about this Roy Harper fellow, but he clearly has sort of a different personality. And and, oh, and, it, yeah. and it translates in in this in this vocal, and it's it's great. I love it. I I 100% agree with everything you said, and there is some magical thing that about this now. When you think about "Welcome to the Machine" and like what it represents and what this song represents, there's so many great great things but like you know it's a hell of a start it could be made into a monster if we all pull together as a team what is more representative 
of making a big time rock band. Okay, we got to come together as a team. And guys, like Roy's going to have to sing this song, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I mean, it, it just makes it perfect. It makes it perfect. Hmm. I hate to to harp on this. From now on, I'm going to have this love-hate relationship with the catalog in that I love what they do. I love how they do it. I revel in it. But I just get tired of fucking Roger complaining all the fucking time about everything. (laughs) Jesus Christ, (laughs) shut the fuck up. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, so we, you know, we have Welcome to the Machine and Have a Cigar. Great songs, but, you know, we're starting with the whining. All Animals is going to be one big 45-minute wine fest. Oh, wait, one album's not enough. We've got to do two albums on the wall of me pissing all over everything that's that's fucked me over in my life. And then we're going to throw Richard Wright out, and I'm going to give you unadulterated Roger Waters on the final cut, and you're just going to suck it all down, bastards. And, wow. And, and if the music <laughs> wasn't so good, I couldn't stomach it. And and I, I'm sitting here looking at a wall that was started by... Prince from Roger Waters. I love what Roger Waters does. I've said on this on this podcast, I want to hang out with him because there's something there. But musically, it just is a grind. Wow. <laughs> wow. We have right. entered the witching hour at Progressive Palaver. <laughs> Sorry about that. Got a little excited. But I mean, it's just they had one of the biggest rock albums ever and by all accounts and it's funny when in this documentary when they talk about Sid in the first part of it because you always have to talk about fucking Sid (laughs) (laughs) this this episode this little snippet right here is going to be our our, our trailer for the Pink Floyd series I love it but but when in the in the documentary when they're talking about Sid and, and one of them I don't remember which one says you know Sid probably wasn't burned out by the music industry, Sid was probably burned out by us because they were trying to squeeze Sid to get what they wanted. By all accounts, when they started this, they wanted to be big, famous rock stars. They achieved that in spades, and they achieve it in a way that is admirable with Dark Side of the Moon because they create something that is both artistically perfect and universally accepted and bought, and they make fucking tons of money. As Gilmore describes it, more than enough to to satisfy any adolescent dreams you may have. And all it does is make Roger unhappy. And it gives him a platform to grind his axe. Which, cool, I get it. Good for you, man. I mean, I... I still admire the fact that he's the age he is and he is so engaged and and emotional about all of this. But cripes, can't we just have a laugh at some point? Wow. It's so funny. I, so I always found this song to be a little bit, I don't know, like I, I found it less, less complaining than and more cynical. Like, I, I I don't know. It, it, Maybe bec- because the, of the fame and fortune that they that they had, and now they're saying, you know, here we are, these famous rock guys, 
who have done everything we ever wanted to do. And now some suits coming in and saying, all right, guys, sit down. Let me, let me tell you how we're really going to really going to like dig in basically like, okay, now that you guys have made all your money, let me tell you how you're going to make me a rich guy. You know, they're kind of looking down on them and stuff like that. Like I just, I love lines that communicate so much more than just what they, they say. And the the band is just fantastic. That is really what I think. Oh, by the way, which one's pink? <laughs> it it does that, and and the delivery of it is is phenomenal. It's phenomenal. You can it's picture so, him saying it. It, it, it is. It's, it's so funny, Paul, because in the documentary, Roger Waters doesn't like Roy's performance because it's cynical. He actually says that. <laughs> really? Oh, so, oh he's Jesus. Like, he's singing it cynical. And, and that's, he, I forget what direction Roger Waters wanted to go in, but that was one of the reasons. So it's funny you should bring that up. And, yeah, and, it's, it's, it's I mean, funny. If, if it had stopped here, I wouldn't have had the rant I just did. But, but again, you know, when you hear this and, and welcome to the machine, it's, it's, it's fun. It's like, oh, okay. They're, they're big rock stars and, and they've got some, they've got enough muscle at this point to sort of push back on, on the very thing that got them here. Isn't that cool? That's great. But again, when you, when you go through the next three albums and it just becomes an ongoing Roger Waters Festivus list of airing of grievances, you know, it's. <laughs> wow. We're, we're going to have some fun discussions about animals. Holy shit. I love we animals. But, I do, but. but I mean, wow. Wow, the airing of grievances. Shit. So this has to do with your whole problem with Rolling Stone, where everyone talks about angst. So I guess if you you don't want to hear angst in the interviews or in the music. It's it's nonstop from here on out. It is nonstop. Maybe I've been listening to The Wall too much recently. I, I, I don't know. And we'll get there when we get there. But like I said, if, if it had stopped here... It would have been fine, huh? But but it's it becomes unrelenting. Wish you were here and shine on you, crazy diamond, part six through nine. It's the last time that Roger will look outward. I struggle with that because I love these albums, and like I said, there's there's something engaging about Roger when you know in in the Dark Side interview when he does that. That impersonation of Antonioni, it just, it's hilarious. And you're like, mm. where's this guy? I want to hang out with this guy. I want to throw Roger some love and I want to highlight his writing and what he will do to a chorus. So, you know, come and he, D boy, have a cigar, you're going to go far, you're going to fly high and never going to die. You're going to make it if you try, they're going to love you. Right, and it's 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 just a regular rock song or folk song. Well, I've always had a deep respect. I mean, that sincerely banishes of that because I think. Oh, by the way, which one's pink? Nothing really interesting music there, but it's really building up momentum. And then you tell you the name of the game. That's a nice little change. It throws in a little bit of major here, and it makes it a little happy, also a little. Cynical, but I love the way he lengthens the end of the chorus. Call it Ride the Grave Train. A little 
mother in there <laughs> um mm -hmm. or, or some of his other early you know yeah, yeah, open, open g it, songs but it but, is it it is it's he, he's practicing for the wall basically you know all these songs <laughs> it is it is it's gorgeous and it reminds me of what he did to the chorus and and comfortably numb so he really has fine-tuned the art if if the listener wasn't really listening through the verse and the beginning of the chorus we're gonna throw in this little juicy thing here that nobody can deny yeah that, that is yeah and and that that's why i love these albums it's just if i don't think about it dude i'm great i'll just if i can turn off my brain and just sing everything it's wonderful but if i stop and you know and like i said maybe i've been listening to too much of it recently and maybe i need maybe i need to go back and listen to some toad the wet sprocket and sort of you know huh <laughs> You know, Ken, what's really cool about what you just played is that when you play the chords on the acoustic like that, it does it does sound like, you know, a, a, a song right off of the wall. Um, mm -hmm. But it doesn't sound anything like that on the record. And it, I think it goes to back to Tom's earlier point where, you know, this was one of their last collaborative, real collaborative albums. What the band does with that progression elevates this song to something I th which I think is very cool. We start to lose that, not not necessarily a bad way going forward, because I think they did service to the songs, you know, throughout their the rest of their career. But you start to lose that feel of the band taking these chords in some in some instances and, and turning them into something different. I just wanted to throw in this last little bit. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> so now that I've 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 had my little fugue moment, um, talk about Ken going <laughs> off on the text toy. Jesus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Roger. I really do feel bad, and uh, I, I really do hope that I get to see you in October. I can't wait. I wish you were here. It's just a, a sort of a beautiful little expression, a condensed version if you will, of what we're talking about or what they're talking about here, mm -hmm. certainly with regards to mostly Sid, but, but perhaps others as well. It's got a lot of, a lot of hallmarks here. You know, you've got the, the little cool spinny of the radio dial intro, um, into the song. Then you get the, you know, the, the first sort of uber compressed, um, acoustic as if it's coming through the radio. And then you get that super clean sort of lead acoustic on top of it. You're like, oh, okay. You know, and oh, it's just the way that they construct that and, and get you from, from, you know, have a cigar into the, the main song. It's just, it's beautiful. It's fantastic. It's brilliant. It's great that a band, a, a prog band that paints outside the box, if you will, can, can do such a simple song that's effective i mean this is in a sense and i think somebody even mentions this in the documentary that uh i think gilmore even says this is a, this is like a country song and um, it's a simple chord, chord progression with first position chords and you know there aren't a lot of different sections they always go back to the uh, i think it's really only two or three sections in the song but it's just it's so effective and so clean and so well done the lyrics are are beautiful it's a classic because they know when not to play and they these guys know they don't have to do a zillion sections they can do something 
that's basic. This is really what I would call like a, a perfect song. I mean, it's just, it's a beautiful song, and it's just it's a simple song. For me, this you know when you guys would would perform this, you know it was, this was cool. This was like this connected. It made it immediate um, for me. You know, back at a time when we didn't have the ability to necessarily see Pink Floyd. I guess you guys, um, you know, did. But you know, you were you guys were playing this before what eighty seven? I would guess. So yeah, yeah, why 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 did we bring this in? I guess we had to. It was in the fourth-fifth of a pretty good deal or whatever that was. No, I I think the reason we did was because I want to say the summer between my sophomore and junior year of high school, I was in some sort of summer production, and I had to be driven because I didn't have my license yet to whatever rehearsals we had. And John Delaney was somehow in charge of driving me. And John Delaney had just recently discovered this record, so this is what we would listen to uh, while we were driving to rehearsal. And I was so struck by all of the things that Joe described early on in the song that uh, I think this is the song that made me want to get a 12-string guitar, 12-string acoustic. And then when I got it, it's all I wanted to play. And I think, you know, I basically said to you guys, okay. I got a 12 string. We have to play Wish You Were Here. That's my recollection of uh, of that. But here, here's a couple, like my, my couple notes on this one is that once again, David Gilmore is just a, a madman on guitar. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's not that, it's not what he plays is so difficult. But when you, when you think about this song and you th- play the notes, and and then you go back and then you play and then you really listen to what how he plays it and then you start to go back and try to play it with all of the bends that he does in the places that he does them. Yeah. It re- it's 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 not it's not hard, but it's not easy by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, it is it's such a gifted melody and gifted solo that that he delivers. The the vocals on the on the uh, second the second vocal part with uh, how I wish you were here. There, there's something really perfect the way that the harmony is tracked because yeah. it's it's not really in sync 100%. It's just a, a little hair off. It it, it kind of gives the impression of just a couple guys sitting around on a sofa, and, and and you know, or maybe even a couple of guys who tracked it separately at different times when the other person wasn't even there, and and you know, for for me, the idea of that possibly being what happened in this and they're singing "Wish You Were Here." Sometimes, you know, I think about the fact that you know they think they're singing about Sid, but at the same time, you know, they they could be singing it about themselves in the band because you know, as you were saying, Tom, that this was when they started seeing the cracks in the wall and realizing that things weren't really what they used to be and. And obviously, 30 years later, you can read a lot more into things like this, but it just seems like they captured that that absence. The fact that those lines aren't together all the time sort of you know, underscores the, the theme of the song. When I listen to this song, Paul, I realize that those harmonies aren't always there. I've, I always sing them, and I know... We 
we sang them. I should say you and Ken sang them. Um, but that not all of them are in there. And I think they're kind of spotty. We, we feel them. Yeah. And we're so used to hearing the song and we're so used to singing along with the song that when we just, we shut up and then we listen and we're like, Oh, wait a minute. Um, <laughs> yes. Some of those harmonies are there, but some of them aren't in there. It is a little, um, spotty at times, but I don't know. The song always just works. And, yeah. um, it just, it, it's actually it ties into a little bit with, oh, I don't know. I was saying at some point, uh, Pink Floyd, uh, asked you to participate. And I think that's what makes them successful. And I think even in a basic song like this, you know, basic sort of country song, they still ask you to participate because you're singing along the harmonies. Yeah. And it's, it's uh, once you, once you're doing that, you're, you're there hook, line and sinker. I remember extending this into our full band and I moved over to, uh, keyboards and even the simple little keyboard things uh rick right did gave me chills mm. there's just like the little thing yeah yeah uh, <laughs> but but clearly it's all about the guitar yeah and i i i never stopped playing it played, played it continually and i i just i just love the subtle key change in there that's all you know clearly normal major suspended stuff repeated just right there just just yeah. just just pushing that two chord into a seven makes it so happy mm -hmm. it's really warm and fuzzy and then one more time Oh wow. And 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 I'm not going to say it's a country song. It's like really well crafted. I you know, there are song writers, well, just songs, individual songs that stand out. But the form of this, I would equate it with like uh, you know, Elton John and Bernie Taupin where where you're not just repeating three chords over and over again. You're going on a journey in a pop song and it doesn't sound like musical theater amen yeah this song is sort of what's the right analogy i was gonna say freebird but but it's not like freebird as an acoustic performer right like i might go years without performing this song but lo and behold one day someone will show up to a bar and say like do you guys know wish you were here i'd love to hear that and you play it and it's Every time, whenever I play it, Ken, to your point about those keyboards, when we're playing the, the parts in between, I'm always humming along in my head to the, <laughs> key, the keyboard line. It, it's like it's missing. If it's not there, you're just like, oh, it's, yep, it's great. Yep, yep. And th there, there is one funny thing. I always hear this weird 70s song. Do you guys know this Gilmore Lick? Does that ring a bell in the and wish you were here? Oh yes, yeah, 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 yeah. Yep. <laughs> but that reminds me of the, da, 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 the Carpenters. Da, 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 yeah. Da, da, da. yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm so glad you said that. Yeah. That's, <laughs> yeah. 
And it's not in a bad way. It's just perfect. Yeah, yeah. I never, I never noticed that before. But you're, you're amazing at that because you were doing that in Genesis, picking out different songs, <laughs> Brian Adams and stuff like that. That's great. This is a pretty proggy album, right? Because you got the long form song at the beginning, you split it in half, you put the long form song at the end, and then you've got these three sort of discrete and yet discrete songs with very different personalities in the middle. It has almost, dare I say, a going for the one vibe or something like that, mm -hmm. right? Interesting. You know, you get a little bit of prog, you get a little bit of, uh, you know, upfront single type material and you, you mix it all together and it's great. So after they finish this up here with our, our beautiful acoustic um, Wish You Were Here, that becomes almost anthemic. I think by the time it's all said and done, then we return back to the the the, the smooth beauty that is um, "Shine on You, Crazy Diamond." And you know, it, it, "Shine on You, Crazy Diamond" is amazing. It, it I think the the first the first sections are thirteen and a half minutes, and the last you know four sections are twelve and change or something like that. And, and both of those just seem to fly by. And, and I've made this comment before, and I make the comment because it's amazing how easy it is to listen to these albums. And, you know, there are, and we've made comments, there are some, there are some bands that can do a three minute song that, that has you looking at your watch going, are they done yet? Are they done yet? <laughs> and, and, and here you, you know, you 12 minutes of your life just go by and you're like, what? Wait. Is it over? Why? You know, let, mm -hmm. let's keep going. Yeah. And, you know, Joe, for all of the complaining going on in the middle part of the album, they really end it in a very happy, major, uh, resolved, happy fashion. Yeah. It's, it's, they're completely not foreshadowing the next three albums with the, with the ending of this. It's quite delightful. It, it, it is. It's, it's very delightful. You always hear... Uh, when someone passes away or something and it's like, oh, we're not going to mourn them. We're going to celebrate their life. I mean, you know, this is an expression of, of again, that absence and, and the understanding that absence, but it's not a melancholy necessarily mm. expression of that. Um, both wish you were here and, and shine on your crazy diamond. You know, the, yeah. the, it's, it's, it's recognizing you know, what this person brought to your life and appreciating that and, and recognizing them for, you know, the, the traits that they had. And, and that's, that's a good thing. I like it. If you guys so happened to see uh, Echoes, the American Pink Floyd, and you knew they were going to do one side of this album, which side would you want to hear? Ooh, damn. That's pretty rough. You gotta pick I one. I'd go for side two these days. Yeah, I think if I had to make that choice, I'd probably go for side two simply because uh, I, uh, maybe there's a perverse part of me that would want to see how they would perform Welcome to the Machine Live. I don't necessarily know how you would pull that off successfully. You know. I thought well, Welcome to the Machine was on side, side one. Yeah, 
Exactly. Yeah, it is. It that, is. That's, yeah. That, oh. that, that's what would. Oh, that, oh sorry. That's what I was, could I'm potentially make Joe, me pick saying. side one. Jo- jo- Joe's sorry. first choice was side two. Gotcha. But he okay. he he, he would be happy with his second choice because he would just love. And 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 I did pull up some of the bootlegs. And 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 to be clear, it sounds like there are drums in "Welcome to the Machine" in the live versions, and it sounds like Rogers um, maybe singing where Gilmore would have sung. It's interesting in Floyd, like you can actually interchange Roger and Dave in some interesting songs. Um, yeah, and, and still get a really cool effect. And uh, and of course, live they didn't have Roy Harper, so Roger was was singing, have a cigar. Hmm. Just just fascinating stuff. Um. So yeah, I'm gonna try to dive into a few more of these bootlegs and see, you know, what was going on and see what they did pull off and what they carried into the animals era and even the wall era. Cool. All right. So I I, I feel I have to apologize for my my uh, unprovoked outburst. <laughs> Not exactly sure where that came from. <laughs> But, you don't have to apologize for anything, Joe. Why would you apologize? Well, it was... Uh, that's that's the whole point. That's what the people want. It, they want to hear our true feelings. Well, I, I feel like it might be somewhat unfair, but, but you know, and and like I said, I, I didn't even necessarily know I was carrying that around. And and I apologize merely because I, I maybe prolonged our, our agony here. This has been quite the marathon session. So... Um, you know, I I don't know if you guys have any sort of last closing thoughts on the album. Wish you were here before we uh, we close this out. Well, I'll just say, Joe, you may not be the only li- the only person in the palaver world who is disenchanted with Roger Waters' <laughs> constant complaining. I, I I'm still going to uh, echo Roger's beauty. <laughs> <laughs> And I, I think you listen, know, it's hard to it's hard to avoid that. But but listen now, listen. Well, you wore out your welcome with well-worn precision. I thought it was random on precision. The, I maybe he changes it up or I don't, yeah. It sounds uh, like that, but I but I think it is well-worn. Yeah. Oh okay. Um, blown on the steel breeze. I don't know what that is, but it just sounds great. That that line to me sounds like a John Anderson. Some of this, a lot of this, sounds like a John Anderson lyric to me, where it, it means nothing, but it just sounds so perfect for the <laughs> for the spot. This, come on, you raver, you seer of visions. Come on, you painter, you piper, you prisoner, and shine. That is so perfect for Sid. I'm getting chills. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Progressive Palaver. As always, we've enjoyed sharing our conversation with you, and we look forward to and invite and solicit your thoughts, your feedback, your comments, and your questions. You can reach us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. We are at ProgPala on all of those, or search for Progressive Palaver. You're welcome to email us. Our email address is progpala, that's P-R-O-G-P-A-L-A, at gmail.com. Progressive Palaver is available for subscription and download on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or 
presumably wherever you do find your podcast. And we are, as always, hosted on SoundCloud. So until next time, thanks for listening. I dig the idea of the G minor in uh, Shine On Your Crazy Diamond segueing into the C minor of the flavor theme. Big props to Dave DeWitt. <laughs> <laughs>